Well, thank you very much, uh, Willem. And um, as you can see this evening, you can uh, generate a big audience these days for anything with credit crunch in the title. In fact, I've suggested to our conference people that we just add it to the title of every lecture uh, that we run. Uh, so you're going to be having the future of the South Ossetian enclave and the credit crunch. Uh, <laughs> new perspectives on Peter the Great and the credit crunch. Uh, and one I'm looking forward to, Foucault, Lacan and the madness of bankers in the credit crunch. I think. <laughs> but um, in fact, perhaps we shouldn't at an academic institution be talking so much about it because you may argue that it's rather a bad time to assess the implications of what's been going on because we're still quite clearly, as Willem said, in mid-crisis. And it's quite difficult to gain a proper sense of perspective on recent events. And particularly in relation to the central banks, I think we have to recognize that their practices are changing from week to week and indeed from day to day. And they've been doing things which little more than a year ago they said they would never do. Uh, last week, Mervyn King referred to an extraordinary, almost unimaginable sequence of events following the failure of Lehman Brothers, and as he pointed out, the scale of central banking support has been unprecedented. In a less noticed part of that speech, by the way, Mervyn noted that the age of innocence, as he called it, when banks lent to each other unsecured for three months or longer at only a small premium to expected policy rates, will not quickly, if ever, return, raising the prospect of a permanently different relationship between banks and the financial authorities. So we should be careful about jumping to conclusions in the midst of a crisis. And some of the issues which seemed crucial uh, a year or so ago when the bank was trying to push Northern Rock up a hill uh, have now faded almost into prehistory. So this will not be an exercise in apportioning blame, fun though that would be. Uh, there will be many other attempts to do so. They're already beginning. And if this were a car crash, there would be a need to establish percentage responsibilities and no doubt parliamentary and congressional inquiries will seek to do so. But having lived through a few episodes of financial turbulence myself as a regulator, though nothing on this scale, I have a well-developed allergy to those who tour the battlefield while the fighting continues, bayonetting the wounded. Uh, curiously, last week, Alan Greenspan bayoneted himself, um, which we might come on to a little later. So, in fact, this is a peculiarly bad time to be writing a book about the future of central banking, which is what I've been trying to do. And I worked assiduously over the summer, produced 100,000 words or so, almost all of which are now only waiting for me to press the delete button twice to put them, <laughs> uh, put them out of their misery. Um, I don't expect an outburst of sympathetic emotion at this point. Uh, my draft is not perhaps the most significant casualty of this crisis, but it's the one I can't help caring a little about. Now, one thing we can say without much fear of contradiction, is that the theory and practice of central banking has received much greater exposure recently than it has for some time. When economic conditions are calm, when the famous misery index of inflation and unemployment is low, central bankers fade into the background. And Mervyn King has regularly said that it is his ambition to be boring. Indeed, he made a renewed plea for boredom last week. I extend an invitation to the banking industry, he said, to join me in promoting the idea that a little boredom would be no bad thing. Sadly, I think this plea is unlikely to be heard. And indeed, Mervyn himself is rather bad at being boring, uh, both in public and in private. Now, at times like this, there's no point in thinking that central bankers can be self-effacing. We realize that they are rather crucial parts of the landscape. 
Indeed, we might share the view of that insightful commentator on economic policy, Will Rogers, who said there have been three great inventions since the beginning of time, fire, the wheel, and central banking. <laughs> now, the potential subject matter which fits under my title tonight is so vast that I must try first to set a manageable agenda for myself. One of the advantages of being the director of the LSE is you can set your own exam paper. And I aim to explore five issues, albeit last of them quite briefly. And I may disappoint those craving for certainty by leaving the answers to some of them open, but that's my state of mind at present. Willem, of course, always knows his views, even on questions which have not yet been formulated. But uh, I do not yet have that facility. My issues don't include the important current question of what the central bank's monetary policy to the current sharp downturn should now be. There, my view is the same as villains. They must cut rates and cut vigorously. Uh, but tonight, I aim to look more at structural than at conjunctural issues. And the five questions I'll address are, first of all, how far can we say that loose monetary policy in the last decade was one of the most important factors that led to the crisis? And technically, and I hope not to be too technical this evening, we might put this question in the form, is it the Fed what done it? <laughs> the second is a related question. If we think that monetary policy was too loose, we still need to deal with the fact that consumer and price inflation during the relevant period remained low and generally within the target range where a change was set. So how could central banks have justified adopting a tighter policy had they done so? The potential answer is that they should have taken more note of rising asset prices. So the question to address is, should monetary policy attempt to respond to emerging asset prices uh, to emerging asset price bubbles in particular, and this is often known as the leaning against the wind argument. The third question, and again related, is that if central banks identify asset price bubbles, or price misalignment, should we say, are there other ways in which they should seek to respond? Particularly, should capital requirements on banks be varied to take account of the possible future risk of significant falls in asset prices and therefore of large losses? And this is the intersection between monetary and regulatory policy to which Willem referred. And this is generally now known in the jargon as an argument about macroprudential policy. In other words, might there sometimes be a case for a kind of across-the-board adjustment of capital ratios, one which doesn't emerge from an assessment of the position of an individual bank, but from an assessment of the position of the economy and financial markets as a whole. The fourth question is again related to the third. If it's accepted that central banks have a role in financial stability, then does that necessarily mean they should be directly engaged in banking supervision? And this argument is once again live here, where the Conservative Party now appears to take the view that the shift of supervision to the FSA in 1997 was a mistake. In other words, that Willem and I should never have been separated, um, and that the Bank of England has, as a result, moved too far away from its banking responsibilities. And the fifth broader question, which I'll consider briefly at the end, is whether the events of the crisis and the responses to it justify a major overhaul of what we might call the social contract between the authorities and the banking system. So that's my 
agenda. And you'll notice I haven't included the very central question of how liquidity is provided to the banking system at present. In part, that's because Willem knows more about that than I do, but also because there have been very important changes only last week, which it is really still too early to address. I will refer to the liquidity question at a couple of points, however. Now, on the first question, the strong form of the critique of the Federal Reserve's policy after 2001 can be found, for example, in the writings of Steve Roach, a former chief economist of Morgan Stanley and a long-standing critic of Alan Greenspan. Roach does not mince his words. Central banks, he argues, were asleep at the switch. The lack of monetary discipline has become the hallmark of an unfettered globalization. Central banks have failed to provide a stable underpinning to world financial markets and to an increasingly asset-dependent global economy. And he calls for a shift away from what he refers to as one-dimensional fixation on CPI-based inflation. That argument's been reinforced by those who believe that the CPI gave false readings as a result of the entry into the traded economy of huge new super-competitive nations, especially China. Competition from China held down the prices of traded goods and indeed the wages of manufacturing workers, while leading participants in financial markets grew incontinently rich recycling the excess liquidity created by the central banks. That misled the Fed to a belief that inflation had been conquered and that a productivity revolution was underway. The critics considered that this reading of inflation was fundamentally wrong. The CPI itself was, as Gerard Lyons of Standard Chartered has dubbed it, Chinese price inflation, uh, held artificially low by the Chinese export boom. In fact, during the so-called Great Moderation, to which we used to refer a mass expansion of credit was underway, both inside and outside the banking sector, leading in turn to mispricing of risk and asset price bubbles under the noses of central bankers myopically monitoring their narrowly defined inflation objectives. That is the strong form of the critique. And one useful measure of risk mispricing was the high-yield bond index, which by 2006 was trading at spreads above U.S. Treasuries around half the long-run average. There are many indices and measures you can use of risk mispricing in this period, but I think this one is particularly vivid. Now, I think it would be wrong to argue that loose monetary policy in the U.S. after 2001 was the sole cause of the boom and bust we've seen. There are many other culprits whose actions must be taken into account. Alan Greenspan himself, in what was not quite a mea culpa last week, in fact defined his error as being to believe that the self-interest of organizations, specifically banks and others, was such that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders. Not quite, you will agree, an acknowledgement of monetary policy errors. Nonetheless, I think there is now quite a consensus that U.S. interest rates certainly were kept too low for too long in the early years of this decade. While the Fed's actions after the dot-com bust were justifiable and effective, they held interest rates at low levels for longer than was necessary, adding fuel to the flames of a boom that was already underway. Now, this criticism is easy to make, especially with the benefit of hindsight. What's more difficult is to identify the ways in which a central bank might take account of asset price inflation in its monetary policy decisions. Yet if we wish to point to improvements in the future, we need to articulate an improved decision rule, which leads us to the second question, the leaning against the wind argument. Is it possible for central banks to do such a thing? Is it possible for them to identify asset price bubbles in a sufficiently reliable way 
to allow that identification to feed into interest rate decisions? Or would that lead to dangerous ambiguity, the famous cross-eyed controller problem that if you give people two objectives that potentially conflict, you can end up achieving none? Now, this is perhaps the fiercest controversy in the world of central banking in the last few years, and has been going on, interestingly, since well before the bubble burst, though going on in, typically in obscure papers uh, in refereed journals. Bill White, the former chief economist of the BIS, was one of those who argued strenuously for a greater focus on credit expansion and asset prices, and did so, to his credit, well before the crisis hit. Surely, he argued, there was a point at which it was possible to identify mispricing and bubbles. Why could interest rate policy not take some account of the risk posed by escalating asset prices, just as it did with other risks to inflation and growth? And Andrew Crockett, then general manager of the BIS and essentially the number one hired hand of the central bank governors, articulated this critique as early as 2003. And he said then, in a monetary regime in which the central bank's operational objective is expressed exclusively in terms of short-term inflation, there may be insufficient protection against the build-up of financial imbalances that lies at the root of much of the financial instability we observe. And that, as I say, was in 2003. This could be so if the focus on short-term inflation control meant that the authorities did not tighten monetary policy sufficiently preemptively to lean against successive credit expansion and asset price increases. In the jargon, if the monetary policy reaction function does not incorporate financial imbalances, the monetary anchor may fail to deliver financial stability. Now, this argument was not accepted by many in the central banking world at that time. Charlie Bean, now deputy governor at the bank, stigmatized Crockett's arguments as the heterodox view. In Bean's view, a forward-looking inflation-targeting central bank should bear in mind the longer-run consequence of asset price bubbles in setting current rates with no need of an additional monetary response to asset price movements. Greenspan himself was even more robust and challenged every link in the chain of Crockett's argument. In his view, it was not possible to identify when a bubble was inflating, and even if it were possible to do so, a monetary response would be ineffective. He said the notion that a well-timed incremental tightening could have been calibrated to prevent the late 1990s bubble is almost certainly an illusion. Furthermore, he argued, it would almost certainly be undesirable to attempt to respond in a way which might constrain markets and constrain the processes of innovation. Instead, the central bank should forget about preventive measures and focus on policies to mitigate the fallout when it occurs and hopefully ease transition to the next expansion. In my view, the misuse of the word hopefully is not the only thing wrong with that sentence. Now, these contrasting points of view seem to admit little possibility of accommodation. Yet there are more recent signs that central banks faced with the massive value destruction now underway are becoming more pensive about the record. I think it may be useful to parse this dispute a little more. One proposition, which is sometimes set up as an Aunt Sally by central banks, is that they should target asset prices. And here there is a large measure of agreement and even the leaning against the wind advocates don't think that should be done. Stephen Cecchetti says, it's important to emphasize that we're recommending that while central banks might react to asset price realignments, they must not target them. So the argument is not about adjusting the definition of inflation on an ad hoc basis as asset prices fluctuate. 
It's about how decision-makers should systematically take account of asset price misalignments in setting interest rates and in determining the appropriate inflation target horizon where they are inflation targeters. The next question is whether the measure of inflation targeted should include some element of asset prices and particularly of house price inflation. As Charles Goodhart has argued, this is a crucial question. As if asset prices are not incorporated in the measure of inflation, uh, they may well express, the authorities may express well-founded anxieties about asset price inflation from time to time, but they will lack a framework to respond to them in an effective way. His argument is that the case for incorporating a measure of house price inflation into the targeted rate is far stronger than it is in the case of equity prices. Alkian and Klein and others argue that a correct measure of inflation should include asset prices as they reflect the current money prices of claims on the future as well as current consumption. Yet the current definition of inflation as used in the UK and the EU excludes any element of housing costs. And Mervyn King himself has expressed frustration at this. The question is in the hands of Eurostat, and it has been for some time. So I think there is some consensus emerging that a better approach to the definition of inflation would include some element of house prices. But how high a weight should be given to them and how far should monetary policymakers respond? Cicchetti, interestingly, <coughs> has calculated the impact on U.S. inflation were an index of home sale prices to have been included instead of a measure of imputed housing costs as at present. And over the five years from 2000, computed inflation would have been three-quarters of a percent higher per year than recorded on the CPI used, which would have pointed to tighter policy. In the UK, the effect would have been even greater. The recomputed RPI, including house price inflation, would have been between 2 and 4% higher over the last decade. I'm not sure that a recomputation on that scale is what Mervyn King has in mind, and I think, indeed, that may be over-egging the pudding somewhat. But if we agree that we should take some account of house price inflation in the target, we must nonetheless ask how we might know that asset prices are <coughs> in unsustainable territory and justify a response. Here, the divisions of, review, of view remain very marked. Ben Bernanke, before he joined the Fed, noted that the advocates of bubbles would be forced to admit that it's difficult or impossible to identify any particular episode conclusively as a bubble, even after the fact. Rather a tough observation, I think. Jean-Claude Trichet is similarly doubtful. <clears throat> in 2005, he said, there is a fundamental difficulty in calling an observed asset price boom as a bubble. It must be proved that given the information available at the time of the boom, investors process this information irrationally. Now, I think that's a very, very tough hurdle, and I'm not sure I would accept that view, which seems to be based on a rather rigid interpretation of the efficient markets hypothesis. Perhaps one general lesson of the crisis is that central bankers might sometimes be more confident in asserting that markets may have got it wrong. There were other indications that credit expansion was moving into dangerous territory. Here are two of them which come from Tuesday's uh, Bank of England latest financial stability review. Loan-to-income ratios in the UK mortgage market escalated absolutely dramatically from 2003. The top line is the percentage of new advances which were advanced 
at more than two and a half times income. The second line is the percentage advanced at more than three and a half times income, and the bottom line at more than four and a half times income. You can see there was quite an interesting change in trend in about 2003, and these lines began to escalate really quite uh, dramatically. And at the same time, banks' leverage ratios also grew uh, dramatically. This uh, shows the maximum and minimum range in the outer bits of the shading and the interquartile range uh, in the middle. And once again, uh, from about 2003 onwards, um, there was a very large expansion in the leverage ratios of UK banks. So I think if you put these things uh, together with what was going on in house prices, it seems to me there was plenty of evidence of bubbles inflating during the years from 2003 to 2007, stimulated by a remarkable expansion in credit, both on and off banks' balance sheets. Now, more recently, there are signs, as I say, that central bankers are becoming more open-minded on this issue. Some have advanced the proposition, interestingly, that while it's not possible for monetary policy to be adjusted to take account of asset price misalignments, regulatory policy can be. This seems curiously to amount to the argument that while central bankers in their observation of macroeconomic policy can't identify bubbles, that regulators can do so. I'm always ready to believe that regulators are smarter than some people think, but I'm not sure they're as smart as all that. In an important recent paper on this subject, which summarizes the state of the argument, Sushil Wadwani points out that while identifying bubbles is undoubtedly difficult and an inherently uncertain science, the uncertainties are no greater than in other areas where the monetary authorities have to take a view on the basis of highly uncertain assumptions. He says, it's not obvious to me that it's easier to measure the output gap than to identify bubbles. I think that's a good point. So how should we come out on this question? I think central banks must pay more attention to asset price bubbles than they have in the recent past. The output costs have now been revealed to be extremely large. The IMF estimates that uh, equity market busts are typically associated with a 4% GDP loss, while sharp house price adjustments generate output losses twice as large. And I think we are in the middle of a painful new experience which may cause analysts to increase these estimates. I'm not persuaded by the argument that bubbles can definitively not be identified ex ante. Of course, assessing price misalignments is not an exact science, but as Sushil Wadwani has pointed out, all judgments are based on an assessment of risk and a consideration of possible outcomes. And there are indicators which can be used to identify potential misalignments, and many have been proposed by Charles Goodhart and others. I think it's not enough to say that an inflation target regime can, without amendment, take full account of asset price moves by adjusting the inflation horizon. And I note that in the recent past, both the Swedish and Australian central banks have justified rate changes by some kind of asset price overlay. I'm also um, not persuaded... Um, I think we may have gone slightly... Yeah, go back to that. Thanks. I'm also not persuaded by the argument that very large increases in rates would have been necessary to have any impact. The impact on expectations of a more explicit attitude to asset prices in the formulation of policy may itself have an impact on price movements. The dangers of allowing bubbles to inflate for too long have been vividly demonstrated in the last two years. And a policy which attempts to respond in some way to extreme asset price moves in either direction could enhance overall macroeconomic stability. 
But I would accept that there is no one-club response to asset price bubbles and that regulatory policy should also be taken into account. Which takes us to my third question. Is there an argument for using capital requirements on banks in a macro way? This would, I think, be bound to involve central banks in highlighting emerging imbalances and misalignments and inviting regulators, whether their own supervisors or those in another agency, to respond to them by tightening capital requirements for cyclical purposes, not just in relation to the risk profile of an individual institution. Now, setting capital requirements... um, Yeah, stay there. Thanks. um, ..is undoubtedly the most important thing that banking supervisors do. They put a lot of effort into it. The complexity of the calculations they use has been growing. The Basel Capital Accord in the late 80s, designed primarily to cope with the problems created by Japanese banks lending at low margins and with low reserves, was straightforward. You could have as much capital as you liked, provided it was 8%. The rules could be written on a postcard. The second Capital Accord, Basel II, has taken rather longer. I recall attending a first meeting to discuss a new Capital Accord in 1998. It will be implemented in the European Union this year, and in the US next year, maybe. This is following a new regulatory version of the just-in-time theory. In other words, it will be just in time to be comprehensively rewritten. (laughs) Now, why do we require banks to provide a capital cushion? Well, to provide a buffer when times are tough, as times are now. It's generally accepted that the reserves being held by many banks were not adequate, even though they were based on careful calculations founded on losses given default in past cycles. Perhaps they were not enough to cope with the problem identified by Dan Quayle. And this quote, that bank failures are caused by depositors who don't deposit enough money to cover the losses (laughs) due to mismanagement, um, was in the past used by people to ridicule Dan Quayle and to show (laughs) what a complete idiot he is. But in fact, I think it's quite profound and quite a good interpretation of what has been going on um, in the last few years. Uh, I look forward to Sarah Palin's thoughts on this issue, uh, (laughs) which we should probably pay more serious attention to than we did to Dan Quayle in the past. Now, many criticisms have been levelled at Basel II, including the excessive reliance on banks' own models and on credit ratings. Most importantly, it's been criticised for being pro-cyclical, In the good times, capital requirements might be reduced as losses fall, and this can happen even when asset prices are rising rapidly and the risk of disorderly unwinding is rising. The argument, again, most cogently put forward by BIS economists, is that banking regulators should adjust banking requirements to take account of potential asset mispricing. And this argument is now gaining considerable traction. Even central bankers sceptical of the use of interest rates to deal with asset price bubbles think there may be an argument for some kind of macroprudential override on capital requirements when markets look unstable. One leading central banker argued to me recently that the burden of proof needed to adjust capital requirements is perhaps less than that needed to adjust interest rates given the broader economic consequences which arise uh, from a change in interest rates. But though there is an emerging view that greater account needs to be taken of asset prices and macroeconomic conditions more generally in setting capital requirements, there remain considerable conceptual and practical problems to address. 
For competitive reasons, it would be essential for a framework for these decisions to be made on an international basis. But there are considerable differences from country to country. In the decade up to the start of the credit crisis, real house prices rose by over 60% in the US, which is the red bar, um, and by over 100% in the UK, about 110% actually, um, and by about 180% in Ireland, while house prices fell slightly in real terms in Germany. So a common framework may be required, but it has to be one which can be adapted to the circumstances of individual banks. It would have been tough to justify a macroprudential overlay to the lending of uh, German banks operating purely in their domestic property market. In the case of global banks operating in many different markets through branches, there would be a need for a host supervisor adjustment to be agreed by the home supervisor, which would not be easy. But to offer, unfashionably perhaps, a modicum of support for Basel II, it does provide a framework within which these just judgments can be made. Pillar 2 is meant to be adjustable. Basel II includes a Pillar 1 capital charge based on a calculation of losses given defaults, parsing an institution's balance sheet into different risk buckets, and Pillar 2 allows supervisors exercising judgment to supplement that basic capital charge, perhaps in the light of the experience of the bank's risk management standards or whatever. And I think it's conceivable that a macroprudential adjustment of capital ratios could be incorporated into a pillar two calculation. It is not at present, but I think conceptually it could be and the framework would admit of it. But who should do it and how? Well, an obvious answer is the Basel Committee itself, which does, of course, include central bankers and supervisors, even when the central bank is not the national supervisor. But this would be a high-profile task with potentially serious implications for borrowing costs in the economy as a whole. So if there were to be such a macroprudential adjustment, I cannot see it being agreed in the back rooms of Basel at meetings of that committee. It would need to be made at a much more senior level, and both governors of central banks and the international financial institutions would need to be involved. So how would they make the fraught calculations necessary? Well, Charles Goodhart and Avi Persaud have argued that an automatic mechanism could be introduced, whereby each bank would have a basic allowance of asset growth based on the country's inflation target and long-run GDP growth rate. An asset growth above that rate would be given a higher weight in the calculation of capital requirements, providing an automatic dampener on the growth of a bank's balance sheet. Frankly, I'm not attracted by the idea of an automatic calculation of this kind. Indeed, I'm suspicious of any approaches to banking supervision which seek to remove judgment from the process. There can be unsafe banks whose assets are declining relative to the market, perhaps because counterparties are suspicious of them. Unusual market share growth can be an indicator of poor credit decisions, but it can also be an indicator of superior management and better business focus. An automatic stabiliser would potentially freeze market shares and indeed even offer protection to sleepy banks as better banks could not gain share on this model. There'd be a risk of returning to the days of lending ceilings and credit guidance which were discredited some time ago. Instead, I think you need judgment and I think you need a high-level group which would be responsible for publishing six monthly assessments of the banking system, which if enough of the stress indicators were blinking amber, 
would justify a recommendation to the supervisors to impose a capital surcharge on banks' exposure to those markets considered to be showing signs of overheating. The group could develop a suite of stress indicators using probabilities of default and equity price movements as a market sign of potential instability and therefore a justification for dynamic capital requirements. And this would be a very important new task for central banks to perform with their financial stability hat on. Now this therefore leads to my fourth question. We all generally accept that central banks should have a role in promoting financial stability, but does that mean that they should have a direct role in banking supervision? Has the Bank of England in particular moved too far away from its banking roots since the FSA was established? Was that change a big mistake? Now, as this issue <coughs> is debated in the UK, it's sometimes implied that our system, with the tripartite agreement between the Treasury, the Bank of England, and the FSA, is some kind of unusual outlier internationally. This is not the case. Curiously, there is no settled view internationally on how best to organize financial regulation. If you look at the picture country by country, it's as if a global controlled experiment is underway from which no general conclusions are ever drawn. The range of different models in use is extensive. There are various different taxonomies possible here, and the group of 30 have just produced their own, which slightly differs from mine. But my simplified approach identifies four main varieties of regulatory model. First of all, on the left, there is the traditional three-pillar model, where the central bank oversees banks, a kind of SEC, though the SEC, of course, is, in, in a sense, sui generis. This is the only regulation in the world that regulates only cash equities and not derivatives, but some kind of uh, securities commission handles security markets, and some other commission, or perhaps even the government ministry, takes on uh, insurance. And there are about 57 countries, on my calculations, who operate something roughly along those lines. Then there's a variety of approaches whereby two of the three traditional financial sectors are brigaded together, sometimes in the central bank, sometimes not. Many Latin American countries are organized in this way. I think no one is moving uh, towards it, so it's not wildly interesting. The third one is the so-called Twin Peaks model, whereby there is one prudential regulator and one conduct of business regulator. In fact, of the two main Twin Peak adherents, in one case, the Netherlands, the banking supervisor is in the central bank, while in the other, Australia, there is a separate prudential regulator very well run by an LSE alumnus. <laughs> Several other countries are considering this model themselves, notably, in fact, the French at present. But the fact that the French are considering it does not, in my mind, necessarily imply that it is wrong. <laughs> then the fourth model uh, is the unified regulator or integrated regulation on roughly the FSA model, although there are many different sub-variants. And as you'll see, of the 49 countries that have a single regulator, 10 of them have it actually in the central bank, though those countries are largely rather small countries. I mean, the most distinguished of them perhaps being the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is a unified regulator but also a monetary authority, although you might argue whether it does precisely a central bank since it operates essentially as a 
currency board, so it isn't a fully-fledged central bank. And 39 countries have a unified regulator not in the central bank. So if we then turn our perspective around and come back to the question about the role of central banking, we can look at this biodiversity from a central bank perspective, and it looks like this. In 50 or so countries, the central bank handles supervision of banks and nothing else in the financial sector, apart from its monetary responsibilities, of course. Um, in another 50, the central bank has no direct supervision responsibilities, while in the rest of the world, they either do everything, the 10 of them who are unified, or have banking and some other uh, financial supervision responsibilities. But those are, say, are largely somewhat accidental, I think, uh, in countries that have not really rethought their system. If there is any trend noticeable internationally, it is towards integrated regulation. As I say, almost 40 countries are operating in that way, and there was something of a jump in the number after the UK's introduction of the FSA in 1997. Although, contrary to many people's impression, the UK was by no means the first country to go in this direction. Really, the Scandinavians went into uh, integrated regulation before we did. But there has been a jump since the FSA. So if we got this wrong, we've been leading quite a lot of other countries up a dangerous garden path. And perhaps we should tell them to retreat. So this question is not just of interest to the UK, but is of interest to quite a lot of other countries as well. So was the 97 reform really a mistake, as the Conservatives now argue? They would like to put bank supervision back into the Bank of England, whether it wants it or not. And it's pretty clear that it does not. An alternative critique, which has been developed by Willem here a couple of years ago, is that dividing the two functions of supervision and lender of last resort is risky, but that the right answer is that the FSA should also be the lender of last resort. Now, the arguments on this topic are complex, and I have written about them at rather greater length elsewhere, notably in a book which David Green and I published earlier this year on global financial regulation. So I propose this evening a rather shorthand approach to the subject, and those who care more deeply can shell out £15.99 at the Economist bookshop. <laughs> I would make three points to start with. First, no one seriously contests that the central bank should have a responsibility for promoting and or maintaining financial stability. But there is a problem. Nobody seems quite to know what financial stability means. The term seems to have been invented in 1994 in the Bank of England to denote those objectives that were not to do with price stability or the efficient functioning of the financial system. But quite what one should do in the cause of financial stability is much less clear. Indeed, in 2005, the ECB noted that financial stability assessment as currently practiced by central banks and international organizations probably compares with the way monetary policy assessment was practiced by central banks three or four decades ago, before there was a widely accepted rigorous framework. This, I think, was a prescient observation in the light of recent events. Perhaps it will be a good idea for more central banks to be given a statutory objective to promote financial stability, as the Bank of England will shortly be. Although the government have not yet made it at all clear what they expect the Bank of England to do differently as a result, and they have not attempted a definition of financial stability in their legislation, 
Having a statute will certainly focus minds in the bank and is already doing so. In the Financial Times on Tuesday of this week, Steve Roach argued that the Fed should have a similar objective on the grounds that, quote, under a financial stability mandate, the Fed will need to replace its ideological convictions with common sense. Second, <coughs> the flowering of financial stability reviews in recent years, <coughs> following the Bank of England's invention of the concept in 1996, has not obviously added a great deal of value to the global financial system. The number of financial countries publishing financial stability reviews has escalated dramatically in the last decade. And though I have not done uh, a recession because it's hard to measure financial stability precisely, I would say the number of financial stability reviews is clearly negatively correlated with financial stability. <laughs> and indeed, lots of other people have got in on the act, uh, including international financial institutions and some regulators. But most of these have been bland and uninformative. A recent IMF analysis shows that central banks which publish financial stability reviews frequently even avoid including the financial soundness indicators which have been devised by the IMF. Another IMF paper has devised an interesting assessment framework for financial stability reviews, looking at the clarity of the aims of the document, the coverage in terms of different parts of the financial sector, and the consistency of the assessment approach over time. 26 indicators in total. And the author, Martin Chihak, has graded each financial stability review on a scale of one to four. Interestingly, is adopted precisely the same scale um, as has been adopted by the research, research assessment exercise for UK uh, academics, in which they will all discover the results of in about six weeks' time. But that assessment concludes that many of these FSRs are, in fact incomplete and inadequate. In other words, he looks at these and says, how is the cover does the coverage of the FSR include the whole of the financial sector? Are there actual hard indicators of capital soundness, etc.? And concludes um, that, in many cases, these reviews are simply adding no value uh, whatsoever. And central banks have very rarely indeed suggested in their reviews that there were any serious problems emerging in their financial sectors, even in the FSRs published in the run-up to 2007. But interestingly, speaking to the question I'm addressing about banks and supervision, those who are not directly responsible for supervision have tended to be somewhat more critical and more objective. And the author of this study concludes that, interestingly, gradings are on average higher for central banks not directly involved in day-to-day -day supervision, partly reflecting that the overall assessments in these reports are more candid, which is, in fact, some proof of the contention which was advanced when the Bank of England and the FSA were separated in 1997, was that you would have a better chance of having an overall assessment of financial stability which wasn't designed to conceal potential inadequacies in supervision because it would be done by an institution not directly responsible for supervision. Thirdly, it's important to record that even those central banks who are not operational supervisors have still been involved in the setting of capital requirements, which is, after all, the most important part of the job and where, as I have argued, the central bank has most to contribute in terms of influencing capital requirements in the light of macroeconomic conditions. The Bank of England has, ever since the 
beginning of the Basel Committee been a member of it and has remained a member of it uh, since 1997. So has the Bank of Canada, which has never, in fact, been the Canadian bank supervisor. But one problem is that the central banks tend to send shadow supervisors rather than macroeconomic people to these meetings. And there is little evidence of any tight linkage between their macro analysis and their views on capital requirements. And that's one reason why I think some new mechanism would be needed if we want to bring some macro prudential dimension to this activity. So with those three preambular points in mind, how do the arguments then look on the case for central bank involvement in the grubby business of overseeing individual institutions rather than in the design of capital frameworks, which they do already? The US and the UK differ on this important question. In an early speech, Ben Bernanke, after being appointed chairman of the Fed, argued that the Fed's ability to deal with diverse and hard-to-predict threats to financial stability depends critically on the information, expertise, and powers that it holds by virtue of being a bank supervisor and a central bank. Mervyn King does not take that view. Nor, indeed, does Hank Paulson, whose blueprint for regulatory reform published in March of this year notes that the U.S. system is at odds with the increasing convergence of financial service providers and products. In future, according to his model, the Fed would be the Fed's role would continue through traditional channels of implementing monetary policy and providing liquidity to the system, but that role would replace the Fed's more limited role of bank-holding company supervision. And the U.S. Treasury have proposed three separate regulators, one focused on market stability across the entire financial sector, which would be the Fed, shorn of its direct responsibilities, a regulator focused on safety and soundness of those institutions supported by a federal guarantee, which would be roughly on the Australian model, I think, and a regulator focused on protecting consumers and investors. It's curious that the Bush administration's conclusion on this point from the crisis so far has been that they should reform their system in the direction of the UK's, albeit not getting quite as far as a single US financial regulator. While here, many commentators have concluded that we should move back in the opposite direction. Maybe this is simply proof of the old adage that the grass is always greener. Now, does the performance of the different regimes, whether central bank-based or FSA-based in the crisis in the last 18 months, point clearly in one direction or another? It's not obvious to me that it does. It's hard to conclude other than that good and bad decisions have been made in both organizational structures. I don't think that the crisis has fundamentally altered the balance of the arguments on this issue, though it has altered the balance of argument on the scale of deposit protection and on other questions like the design of a special resolution mechanism for failing banks. As far as the role of the central bank in supervision is concerned, my own conclusions are that no single model of supervision is clearly superior to all others and that nothing in this crisis has added very strong evidence one way or the other on that question. That a functionally based system has many drawbacks and in the light of the US Treasury's analysis, the defences of the US system by successive Fed chairmen are surely no longer operational. Thirdly, that the process of integration of different subsectors of the financial markets continues apace and looks to me to strengthen the arguments for integrated regulation. We can now see that institutions of different sorts, whether they're broker-dealers uh, or like Lehman Brothers or insurance companies like AIG, can be systemic. We can also see that the process of risk transfer around the financial system requires regulators to have a clear view of the financial sector as a whole. 
But the crisis does point to the importance for a central bank of good links with regulators on the one hand and market participants on the other. A central bank which behaves as a monetary policy institute risks finding itself dangerously behind the game when a crisis strikes, and central banks clearly need in senior management positions individuals with experience of and an instinct for the dynamics of banking and securities markets and of the use made of those markets by other intermediaries. However, carrying out the grubby day-to-day task of prudential regulation of individual institutions is neither necessary nor sufficient to create the understanding of financial stability and the threats to it that a central bank needs. And I continue to see other advantages in an integrated model and in the separation of regulation from the monetary authority. What is needed, though, is much more work on what one might call the technology of financial stability assessment, as the ECB have rightly argued. Now, my fifth, and you'll be pleased to know, last question is more general. Is there now, therefore, a need to renegotiate the social contract between the authorities and the banking system? And I'm indebted to Paul Tucker of the Bank of England for the use of this term. It's not, perhaps, the term one would normally think of when thinks of social contracts in the context of employment markets normally. But in some very interesting remarks to a Chatham House conference earlier this year, Tucker described the nature of the relationship between the banks and the state. Banks undertake the economically essential but inherently hazardous transformation of site deposits into long-term loans. Now, we all know that, if this, that this is in the nature of a confidence trick, uh, and that if we all troop along to coots or whores, which I imagine is where most of you have your accounts, um, to take our money out uh, tomorrow morning, it would not be available. So banks would not undertake this maturity transformation activity, and we would not continue to deposit with them unless some underpinnings by the authorities are in place. And the two essential underpinnings are the potential provision of liquidity by the central bank at times when banks need it, and on the assumption that they are fundamentally solvent, the lender of last resort function, in other words. And the second underpinning is the existence of a deposit guarantee scheme, whether backed by an actual fund or by a statute-based levy scheme with a call on the assets of the banking system as a whole, which is what we have had here. These two underpinnings, however, are potentially risky for the state. The state, therefore, needs to know what the banks are up to and to exert some control over their risk appetite, as otherwise it's heads they win and tails we all lose. Bankers may pay themselves extravagantly from the proceeds of risk-taking in the good times while the taxpayers pick up the tab in the bad times. This is no longer an argument which appears only in the academic literature today. It's very real indeed, and hence prudential regulation to exert some control over the banks and essentially to protect the government's risks in the other two parts of their side of the social contract. Tucker points out that all elements of this social contract have now been thrown into question. Central banks have come to realise the provision of liquidity is potentially open-ended and the terms on which they've had to provide it in this crisis are more generous and more risky for them than they have been before. In spite of provision of support, on a massive scale, liquidity has remained under pressure and interbank rates have remained stubbornly above policy rates, as we can see by these spikes, obliging central banks to provide support on hitherto unimaginably liberal terms. And it may even be that they still have more to do if interbank rates do not come down further soon. Deposit protection schemes have also been put under much greater threat on both sides of the Atlantic. 
Undoubtedly, serious losses will be incurred, even if we use anti-terrorist legislation to hold Icelanders hostage. <laughs> so the third part of the contract, the regulatory bit, must also clearly be adjusted. Indeed, that's what we've been talking about this evening at some length. But the question also arises to whether other elements of this contract need to be revised. There are many voices calling for other types of control on the banking sector. Some argue for a version of directed lending with support for the bank's conditional on some volume of advances to particular sectors of the economy. The government have come very close to this themselves. Others argue for controls on executive pay on the grounds, I suppose, though the argument's not quite put this way, that the banks have essentially become quasi-utilities, especially where they have direct government shareholding. This is, I think, really difficult territory. We must hope that the situation we're now in is only temporary. I'm sure that the government and the Bank of England and the Fed hope so too. We would not benefit economically in the long run from continued direct intervention in the banking system, whether through quantitative controls on pricing or through administered, uh, on lending or through administered pricing. The authorities should try to get out as soon as possible. And I was encouraged to see last week the Treasury is already thinking of an exit strategy. In the meantime, the government and the central banks should, as far as possible, use normal mechanisms to exert their influence. So, for example, I think the fraught question of bankers' pay in banks which the government have had to bail out should be dealt with by appointing directors to the board who can influence discussions in the remuneration committee. But it's idle to pretend that there will not be some long-term consequences as a result of this debacle. In future, the authorities will need closer relationships with the banks, and that will involve central banks as well as regulators where they're separate. Indeed, it will involve the macroeconomic and monetary parts of central banks as well. Leverage will be reduced in the banking system for some time, if not permanently. Off-balance sheet vehicles will be of closer interest to the authorities in the future. There will need to be much more dialogue on funding mechanisms than there has been in the past. It's evident that banks were engaging in activities which implicated the authorities in terms of their consequences for the provision of liquidity, while the authorities were either unaware of them or insouciant about them. It would be useful, I think, to situate this debate within the kind of social contract language which Paul Tucker has suggested. We offer finally then just a few very brief concluding observations. The crisis has reminded us that central banks are indeed banks and that their role at the centre of the financial system is crucial in times of trouble. A central bank cannot retreat into an ivory tower and redefine itself as a monetary policy institute, however tempting that might be. But the type of central bank needed in the very different financial system we have today is open to question. Amid all the uncertainties, once again, the definition of central banking is in flux. It's highly likely that there will be significant changes in the definition and in the functions of the central bank in the next few years. The Bank of England's relationship with the markets has already changed considerably in the last 12 months, and the new liquidity arrangements outlined 10 days or so ago will alter things again. And I've suggested some other ways in which I think the relationship will need to change in the future. Fortunately, uh, to end on a slightly optimistic note, which is hard to find in present circumstances, the historical record tends to suggest that central banks have a strong capacity for adaptation. And as Charles Goodhart has pointed out, 
that if the fundamental evolutionary criterion of success is that an organization should reproduce and multiply over the world and successfully mutate to meet the emerging challenges of time, then central bodies have been conspicuously, central banks have been conspicuously successful. Sorry, there's a misprint uh, there. And I don't think this observation uh, is significantly devalued by the fact that it is in a book paid for by the Bank of England. <laughs> the banks will need to rediscover that evolutionary skill to remain relevant in the very different economic and financial world of the post-crisis 21st century. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you very much. That was uh, extremely interesting. I disagree with most of it, uh, but uh, nevertheless it was, it was uh, very good indeed. I uh, will have some time for questions, even though we have technically exceeded our quota of time. I'd like to abuse the chairmanial privilege by uh, asking the first question myself. I would have liked uh, to hear your views on the increasing use of the central banks uh, as quasi-fiscal agents of the government. Uh, the traditional central bank uh, follows uh, the treasury's only model that you have you know, central bank's money on the liability side of the balance sheet and then basically treasury bills and the odd forex reserves on the asset side. But it doesn't take liquidity risk. It doesn't pay subsidies, make transfers to, uh, um, uh, to banks or other financial institutions. That is the task of the treasury, of the fiscal authority. Um, and the reason... Uh, I think this is a good model in principle, is that um, if the central bank acts as a quasi-fiscal agent of the government, uh, it undermines its independence because it may have to be bailed out by the government if, even if ex ante the central bank prices whatever credit, risky credit it provides uh, in exchange for risky collateral uh, appropriately, if the contingency materializes and uh, the uh, borrowing bank and its collateral go belly up, the central bank is a whole its balance sheet. It either has to go cap in hand to the government or it has to give up on its inflation uh, or price stability objectives. So, um, and of course, more importantly even, I think, than the central bank issue is the issue of accountability. We like our taxes and subsidies and transfer payments to be voted on in Parliament and not to be decided by a bunch of chaps sitting in Threadneedle Street. Now, uh, there is an increasing recourse to the central banks, both here and in the US, and indeed also in Euroland, as quasi-fiscal agents. Is this something that should be discouraged, and if so, how? I think it should be discouraged, and I think that the reason it's happened is partly uh, just crisis-driven. Um, but I think one thing it does uh, point to is the lack of alternative mechanisms in place um, to handle these issues when they arise. And my um, perspective on this, having been in the Treasury in the distant past and then in the bank and then in the FSA and therefore have been in all three parts of this tripartite arrangement, is that the ancestry of the Bank of England... I mean, in, in, back in the 80s and early 90s, the Bank of England was, had no formal responsibilities for anything, really. <laughs> um, and it was the kind of all-purpose... Uh, financial advisor 
to the government. It was what the Scots often refer to as the man of business. Mm -hmm. The Scots have a man of business who has a rather vague uh, set of um, responsibilities. Um, and then uh, in 1997, <coughs> in I think a great leap forward, uh, the government, this, the new government, decided to try to clean this up and to strip the bank um, of some of these vaguer responsibilities and to uh, <coughs> separate supervision as we've described and put the monetary policy responsibility on a more formal basis with a target and clarifying responsibilities Well, you've heard the Gordon Brown speech <laughs> many, many, many times. But I think what was not done at that time uh, and it's fine to say now, but it, what was not done was the, for the Treasury to provide itself with some alternative channel of doing things when clearly the government's fiscal policy is at risk and where clearly the government is at risk. And the bank has therefore been propelled back into service in this somewhat old-fashioned uh, financial agent to the government role. Um, I think uh, in the absence of... Uh, of any other agency to, to handle that. So I do think it's um, undesirable. I'm pretty confident that the bank is fighting a stronger rearguard action as it could conceivably do to resist being dragged in this direction and to try to clarify when it is providing liquidity on good collateral and therefore where it's expecting to get its money back and when it is clearly taking a risk, a bet, a, yeah. a bet because mm -hmm. solvency is in question. But of course, it's often easier from outside to identify and distinguish between solvency support and liquidity support than it is when you're actually doing it. Because a bank's concern will always tell you that it's just liquidity that they need. They just need 50 quid till next Tuesday. And, um, <laughs> even if their bank, their balance sheet is fundamentally uh, shot. Mm -hmm. Very good. Questions, please, comments? The gentleman, Mr. Beard. The lady, Mr. Beard. Sorry, the gentleman, Mr. Beard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, my question was a bit away from uh, regulatory aspects, more to policy, if you don't mind. So my question is, how much room do central banks have to, manu to maneuver given the following constraints? As a lender of last resort, to provide liquidity, recapitalizing the banking system, saving companies of national interest, plugging fiscal gaps, maintaining exchange rate stability where exchange rate pegs exist, intervening in the stock market, and where the financial and some corporate sector is exposed to short-term external financing. A case in point could be Russia, for example, which has all of these asymmetries, yet it has immense reserves. I was just wondering how, how, how much room okay. these banks Well, Willem may well want to comment on this, I hope you will. Um, but I mean, that in a sense, that's another version of the question that Willem put yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I would answer rigorously to on almost all parts of your question, none, I would say, that the central bank should be doing any of that. Uh, and that um, if it holds some of the government's reserves, it just holds them there for convenience. But they're not, but if the, if the government needs to use its reserves or wants to to bolster the stock market, it's a pretty risky activity, but it may do, and certainly it may wish to smooth the exchange rate market. We typically don't do that here, but uh, I can see that countries might wish to do that. Then that should be done on the whole by the government and not by the central bank because that muddies the waters very considerably. But no, I, I, I fully agree with that. I think the central bank's job, apart from setting industry, is the provision of funding liquidity and market liquidity. 
and uh, as soon as he gets to solvency issues, let alone uh, making a judgment on whether particular prices, exchange rates or house prices or the stock market should be here, there or elsewhere, um, I think they should be out of that business. Um, the way to implement it operationally is, I think, uh, to immediately transfer uh, any assets that a central bank acquires you know, foot to mute because they are the ones in the firing line. Uh, that uh, in its uh, open market operations, in its repos, at the discount window, that are less than you know, good collateral immediately transferred to the treasury balance sheet automatically, instantaneously. Um, that would be uh, the, the clean way uh, uh, to, to do this. Um, uh, for instance, the SLS should be managed by the treasury. There's no reason why the Bank of England should do it. After all, they don't even provide bank, central bank liquidity. They provide treasury bills in, in exchange. And who better to do this than the treasury? So this would be a natural function for a uh, you know, debt management office to be baptized as a sovereign portfolio management office. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, they could also then accept uh, you know, new uh, mortgage-backed securities instead of just old ones in the process. But that's a separate issue. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. No, sorry, the gentleman over here. Yeah, um, from I, so I'll go to the back in a minute. I'm not discriminating for, for in favor of the nearsighted. Yes. <laughs> Although uh, I can only see gray masses at the back. <laughs> Bad luck. Uh, first of all, an excellent presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, if you could comment on perhaps uh, two things or three things. One is, do you think there are far too many academics on the Monetary Policy Committee and not enough practitioners? The second thing is your whole presentation ignored or didn't put in context the extreme political pressure um, as if bankers and um, central bank authorities were acting independently and there must be a huge element of the politicians bearing to the public where the world is really controlled today by the Daily Mail headline writers. And the third thing, perhaps putting in a football metaphor, it, it strikes me that it's better to have a referee who knows a little bit about the game can run around in the middle of it and has a whistle to stop things and can intervene immediately than a group of people sitting high up in the stands, sitting in a committee to make decisions with this sort of slightly withdrawn and perhaps lack of practical immediate knowledge of what's going on. Well, um, I did deal with uh, the sort of, I think the first and third points um, to some extent. I did say um, that I thought that a monetary policy is, a central bank as only a monetary policy institute was a dangerous thing. I don't, however, think that that invalidates the structure of the Monetary Policy Committee that we have um, with some academic input to it, which is not in a majority, actually. Um, but I do think that um, central banks need uh, people, in the, particularly in the financial stability and the quasi-regulatory functions that they have, uh, who have experience of markets. Um, I also think, personally, and this is perhaps slightly old-fashioned, you know, we've come to believe now, and the Bank of England is once again you know, advertising a sort of deputy governor job, you know, I think there is actually a professional formation called central banking. You know, I think that there is something you learn in central banks, and I think you need actually to nurture the people within central banks and develop them, and such that you do have a strong cadre of people who are really career central bankers at the top of those institutions. And I think it's a complicated mixture of, of market knowledge, regulatory knowledge, monetary policy knowledge, etc. And I did say in my speech that I thought that was necessary at the top of uh, 
of central banks. And I think maybe we've lost a little bit of sight of that in uh, recent years uh, in this country and perhaps in some other places as well. As for the um, political pressure, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's an as an observation, you're, you're, you're right. Of course, there is a political environment. But I do think that the structure here on monetary policy has created some degree of insulation and allowed uh, the bank to reflect in a mature way on the really important decisions on interest rates. And the government has been pretty disciplined about it, actually. When in 1997, I can remember, in fact, Philip and I may have had this discussion ourselves, that you know, there was a quite a bit of cynicism in the bank about whether Gordon Brown, having said, I'm going to take my hands off, you know, I think we expected in the couple of days before each MPC meeting, mm -hmm. um, some speech in Parliament or whatever, you know, marking our cards. And, and I think the government have not done that, actually, or very rarely have they done that. And I think they've tried quite hard to insulate, and more successfully than in other countries. Indeed, if you contrast the UK with, uh, the, uh, with EMU, you can see a lot more attempts by finance ministers there, I think because they have no purchase on the ECB because they do not have uh, influence over the inflation target. And the ECB is both um, instrument dependent and target, instrument independent and target independent, which I personally think is not good as good because in, the, in, our, in our framework, if politicians wish to criticize the Bank of England, you can immediately go back to them and say, well, are you saying the target should be higher or are you saying the bank is making an incorrect judgment about how to meet that target? Mm. In the ECB context, those two things are mixed up. Uh, and so on the whole, I don't think we should flagellate ourselves too much in this country about that aspect of the problem. I think you can never remove interest rates from politics completely. Of course, people have an interest in it, but I think we do probably the best we can on that score again. Okay. Somebody from the back benches. No, oh, nobody there. Okay, that's why you're sitting at the back. Okay, yeah, the gentleman, they're holding the uh, pamphlet up in the air. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my question is uh, about the fact that the Irish decided to take a different strategy compared to England in terms of guaranteeing deposits. I just want to know, in terms of your point of view, um, what was the right course? Was it the Irish way or the English way, going halfway or somewhere? Um, there's sort of Ireland Mark One and Ireland Mark Two, I think. Um, Ireland Mark One, I think, was illegal they did, quite straightforwardly, mm -hmm. um, in that they decided that they would guarantee all deposits in Irish banks in Ireland, and you can't do that and be part of the European Union. Maybe the Irish have subliminally decided to leave, but I mean, that's what they <laughs> seem to have decided in their, in their referendum too, but um, you, know, that, they, they, you can't do that, actually. I mean, it just is illegal, and I think there's mm -hmm. absolutely no doubt about it. Um, they then did row back from that and said, well, they were guaranteeing all deposits in, in Ireland. Uh, I personally think this was not a good approach at all. And the timing was terrible um, because it then created a beggar my neighbor approach in the rest of Europe. Um, I also think uh, that it wasn't the, probably the right answer to the question because I suspect that uh, at least one of the Irish banks was in serious trouble and needs capital. And therefore, a mix of uh, improving deposit protection to calm down retail depositors and providing 
capital injections where those are necessary is a better and more appropriate policy mix. Of course, there is a temptation to paint a blanket guarantee over your system because that doesn't incur any costs now, although the costs in the future are unimaginably high, potentially. Um, but politicians will often prefer an unimaginably large future obligation to a measurable but currently payable uh, one today, and which is, more, which is smaller. So I'm afraid, I think, uh, I, I can't think of a lot to be said for the um, Irish approach to this. The, the Irish solution actually resulted in uh, creating banks that could be insolvent but highly liquid. And that uh, previously was only possible in the former Soviet Union. Uh, uh, Sparebank was in that position for many years. And uh, uh, it's interesting. Uh, right. Uh, at the back there, the gentleman is finally a backbencher. Um, <clears throat> regarding the credit crunch, uh, why were banks, if they were regulated by the FSA, allowed to give what they call uh, self-certificate mortgages, or as they commonly refer to in the US as a, a liar loan? Why were they? Yes. Well, um, the, the, there is nothing in the... Um, rules of the FSA to say that uh, lending money unsecured is illegal. And it would be rather peculiar uh, if we were to say that banks were not allowed. Essentially, they were just making unsecured loans. But they are allowed to do that, and they do that all the time. That's, what's, that's what an overdraft is. Um, so uh, in itself, uh, that is not illegal. The way that the regulator would typically approach that question is to uh, look at the scale of the risks to a bank's balance sheet um, of its lending overall. And I think that the uh, issue in relation to capital regulation is not particularly the one to which you point, but it's the overall shape of the bank's mortgage lending uh, in the last two or three years. And that's why I put up that slide which showed the percentage of loans that were being issued at very high loan-to-income multiples, um, which was in total, I think, becoming a very large proportion of the balance sheet and therefore uh, should perhaps have shown up in the form of higher capital requirements because the risks of that lending um, was greater. I think the gentleman's question may have partly been that what you saw there was the ratio of mortgage to possibly you know, self-certified income rather than actual income. So it could actually be worse in terms of actual income. Uh, yes, it could have been. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, certainly regulators would look at the proportion of loans that were lent on what they would regard essentially as an unsecured basis, and they would mm -hmm. apply a higher capital requirement to that. But I think that in most banks, except conceivably Northern Rock, the proportion of self-certified was not so high as I understand it. Uh, do more, two more questions. Yeah. Okay, we do two more questions. Gentleman over here who's been handed hand there and the gentleman over there. What powers would the regulator have had to be different yes. in the stance he or she well, has adopted? I think that um, 
I think that the, the problem, that the answer that I was trying to give to that question, that which, I, which, I will, uh, uh, which I will try to give you, is that I think that it would have been actually very difficult for an individual regulator in an individual country to adopt an approach that was significantly at variance with the internationally agreed approach. And that therefore, the question is not so much wh whether the FSA or the Irish FSA or whatever, because they had an even bigger problem quite clearly than us, um, made errors of judgment, but whether the framework that they were operating within was fundamentally flawed. Um, in that, it did not take account in a dynamic way of the risk of systematic asset price misalignments. And I think that to have required, or to, to have, to suggest now that an individual regulator in an individual country uh, should have departed from the Basel framework radically and required radically higher capital requirements would have been a heroic thing to do. Um, and could have risked bank relocations and all kinds of things. You'd have had a mayhem, I think, if you'd tried to do that. So my answer really is that we have to look at the framework and we have to try to find a framework which allows regulators to apply a dynamic approach to provisioning, but to do so within a framework which uh, preserves competitive neutrality internationally. In other words, where there is a clear rationale based on the behavior of asset prices in the markets concerned, which can be prayed in aid and, and as a justification for an increased uh, capital requirement. I think that's one point. And then, of course, the other point is the interest rate question, um, where I think it's clear from my analysis uh, that it looks to me as though um, interest rates were too low uh, if you look at what was going on in asset price markets. But they did depart significantly for Basel too in North Korea. Obviously, central bank policy is designed to target the domestic economies uh, in terms of inflation targets and those sorts of things. But if you look at things like the yen carry trade and the imbalances that that's built up in the globalized economy, to, to what extent can or should central banks also consider the, the global effects um, that they're say, perhaps monetary policy uh, may have? Um, well, uh, I think that you would find, um, if uh, you were on the Bank Monetary Policy Committee, that an important part of the presentation before each Monetary Policy Committee meeting is a presentation on the state of the global economy and the way in which that is impacting on domestic inflation. So. There's something like the yen carry trade, I think, would not often figure as something which was going to affect UK domestic inflation unless there was something strange going on with the sterling exchange rate. So the banks, the central banks certainly do consider the global context within which they are operating, but certainly that is followed as a route through to the domestic price level and not for its own sake. Okay, I think we're going to have to leave there this because the hour is approaching. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Howard Davis for a really very <laughs> <laughs>